everyone and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I am joined today by Callum Watt. Good evening. And Ollie Walwyn. Hello everyone. So we're going to take you through a, a nice variety of topics this week, starting with free school meals. Now obviously that this is something that has really hit the headlines this week. Earlier in the pandemic, Marcus Rashford led a campaign to see free school meals continued over the summer for children that are entitled to them, which the government caved into pressure eventually and uh, provided the school meals through vouchers and voucher schemes that could be redeemed at shops and other such places. Uh, we've obviously seen the return of school in September this year, and we've seen the return of uh, obviously free school meals, so children aren't going hungry during the school days. Now, we're now in half term as we're recording, and we've seen that actually the government has refused to provide free school meals throughout the holiday period. And that will be extended to Christmas as well. There will not be free school meals as it stands for students over Christmas. Now, obviously, Marcus Rashford has continued his campaign and has obviously condemned the government in their actions in doing so, as has the opposition parties across Westminster. Even Nigel Farage was against this. So you know you're d doing something very wrong when the far-right government is being condemned by the far-right former UKIP leader. Now, the Labour Party, we've been rather critical of them on this podcast at points in their opposition to the government, but they've actually been at the forefront of this. So the motion to Parliament to get free school meals provided over the holiday breaks for school children was brought forward as an oppo opposition day motion. Keir Starmer was calling for this to be brought forward so that numbers, well, a large number of vulnerable children will be fed and given a nutritious hot meal throughout the holidays. Now in Lincolnshire, it's believed that there's around 22,000 children receiving free school meals. And again, those 22,000 children will be missing out on government subsidised free school meals. What we have seen, however, is the community in Lincoln and around the country come together to support these children. We've seen businesses, we've seen restaurants providing free or discounted meals to families so their children can be fed at this tough time. We've seen a number of businesses offering an extension to that, so even to the weekends when they wouldn't have needed vouchers according to the scheme as it was in the summer. So I think that's already an incredible incredibly positive thing to come out of this to see that despite the pandemic and despite the fact that these businesses are on their knees they are standing up to the plate and they are fighting that corner for school children that need free school meals however the same can't be said for the conservative government the same can't be said for boris johnson and his cronies who have outright refused to stand up and deliver free school meals, stand up and fulfil their responsibilities as a responsible and, dare we say, caring government in this country. So, Callum, what has been your reaction to the news throughout this week and exactly this whole saga, how it's how it's played out? I'm just wait. Well, I was just waiting for the government to do uh, what they did over the summer holidays. Um, this is a this is a very typical thing where uh, the government's 
refuse to do something like refusing school meals or if they do something else that's extreme um and then they backtrack on it later to effectively make themselves look better look look, look less extreme and also at the same time to push the boundaries a little bit to uh, lower people's expectations just that little bit further um i would be very interested to know why that isn't happening this time I, there's a suggestion that um they that the, 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 the boris johnson might just simply being stubborn um in refusing to to uh feed the children which sounds absurd doesn't that i mean as i said before rec rec recording you know um i haven't been able to get band-aid out of my head um all day because of this story um you know band-aid was a charity song to sing about star starving kids in another country far away um and although comic relief has liked to remind us every year of course rightly that there have always been kids um you know in poverty in this country um not on this scale um and i know that was a that was a, another excuse from the government wasn't it that, that journalists keep asking them you know are you going to let kids starve and the response from i think it was nikki morgan was well kids have always starved and um uh, more insultingly than that they they tried to say oh well under a labor government they they were starving you've been in power for 10 years 10 years whose fault is it you know you're, you're in charge of the whole thing you know the cost of um the cost of uh, providing those meals would be less than the eat out to help out scheme um so it's well within their capabilities um and it's it's not shocking because i can't really be surprised by anything that this government does at this point but it is interesting to see matt hancock saying up standing up there a little bit like they did some saying isn't marcus Ratch rashford a good boy for campaigning for you know uh the lived out of his own lived experience and for his neighbors and family and so on um but also we're going to do nothing about it even though we easily have the power to do so uh morally speaking just finally the the the, the, the clear uh, argument is you know the tories that say oh well it's the parents fault if they can't feed. well even if you believe that then surely it's then your obligation as as the state uh to to step in and provide for those kids yourself so there's no moral justification for this even if you're taking a very puritanical moralistic view um i i don't really understand the the, the intellectual basis except except for pure stubbornness and i think it's going to do them a lot of political damage as well i mean obviously political damage to the tories is is a good thing but it it, it rings hollow when you know that there are going to be people who will start suffer become malnourished and potentially affect their life choices going forwards just children you know um that's the tragedy of all of this um so I, I wait and see if they'll change their mind, but I'm not confident. I think one of the things that struck me over the last week is how a number of Conservative MPs that voted against the motion to prevent children from starving 
were accusing Labour of making political gain out of this, essentially accusing Labour of playing political games. Now, there are certain things that we can all agree are, are not political and should just be done as the right and moral thing to do. And to feed children, I would argue, is right up there, along with ensuring people have good education and the, and the proper health care that they require to make a success of life. And that's up there. Feeding hungry children in our own country is something that we should be demanding as a right, not as a choice for a government to make as it seems fit. If the government can fund Eat Out to Help Out, then the government can fund to pay for children's school meals for a couple more weeks in a year. It's not a massive commitment. It's not on the level of HS2. It's not on the level of expanding Heathrow. It's not on the level of renewing Trident. If anything, monetarily, it's justifiable completely, even for the Tories and their, and their very much budget approach, budget approach to how to run the country is completely affordable and it's completely necessary that they do U-turn on this because it's unacceptable. Ollie, how have you been reacting to the to the whole story this week then? What was that? Sorry, was that me? Yes. Sorry, you were cutting out a bit there. Oh, sorry. Yeah, um, well, I just think it's such a strange, strange hill to die on, really. Um, I, I think, as uh, as Callum rightly pointed out, their, their excuses have been pathetic. Like, citing money that they gave um, councils to get through the summer, as if that's even covered the original intended purpose, let alone giving uh, meals to thousands of children. Um, I think it made me really angry when I saw that they were praising Mar Marcus Rashford as, as if there's some courts kind of like disconnect as if, as if there's nothing that they can do about it, as if they hadn't just voted against it. I think he's done a fantastic job, um, not only on running a, a very successful campaign for feeding vulnerable children, but also on calling out the government's bullshit in their response to this kind of backlash. Um, I think I think it's just really sad because this is something, as we've said, um, a majority of this country agree with. Like it's it's not a it's almost not a political issue because it's just it should be inherent as our as our values as our as our morals. Um, but then you got people who have uh, kind of I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter where they're they're saying like oh it's it's so it's so so cheap to be able to feed your children like. Uh, soldiers and eggs and are only 33p and it's it's just it's adding to this kind of um this idea well it's a very it's a very tory idea really about um it's it's the parent the parents fault it's uh it's them not doing their duty it's them blowing it on alcohol and cigarettes and drugs or whatever because that's very much in line with if with tory ideals about blaming poor people for being poor um I think it's really sad because we've heard this before and there are, there are millions of children that are in poverty that don't even come under this category where their parents are are, are working like full-time jobs and they're still not able to provide for their children and, and pay all their bills. And it's, it's a real, it's a real shame really. I just, it's a very, it's a very sad story, but I think ultimately I'm hoping anyway, we've seen, um, more Tory, Tory MPs um, kind of rebelling against it today. 
I think ultimately they will have to do a U-turn because there's just so much backlash and it's so bad for them politically. I think the longer that they continue down this really weird and twisted path of, of martyrism, I think it's going to be much worse for them politically. Yeah. And as a yes, as activist in the Labour Party yes, or on the left, how how do we <laughs> react to this? The scum. As the scum. And Angela Lorraine had it quite right the first time. I, I know for uh, for the sake of parliamentary etiquette, uh, she had to to formally withdraw the remark, but I think uh, I think she captured the mood of the country, uh, calling calling the the Tories that. Um, and I know the, the Tories are trying a rather pathetic uh, um, deviation tactic by by trying to condemn Labour for for using for using swear words in in the House of Commons, um, but really I think it was a very appropriate remark. Um, even if I do have a little slight nerdy part of me that enjoyed enjoys the way that uh, uh, the speaker sort of the deputy speaker sort of told her off in that sort of we will not have language like that on the front bench. Uh, I, I kind of enjoyed that, but um, nevertheless, I think Angela Lorraine was absolutely right and responded to it correctly. Um, but yes, that's 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 my reaction to it. I think that will be the reaction of a lot of people in in the country as well. Um, there are a lot of mothers out there, and there are a lot of anxious and a lot of anxious who would say the same thing as Angela Rayner, um, and and a lot of fathers as well. I'm sure that and they are electors, and they will remember that. So yeah, I think that I think the Tories are making a mistake here. Uh, a serious mistake, especially. I mean, look, malnourishment can have long-term consequences. Rickets, you know. I think there have been some cases of that in the UK recently, in the austerity era. That could become a lot worse. Bear in mind, we've still got potentially. Well, we've realistically, we could. This could be going on for another year. Is this going to keep happening every time there's a holiday? Um, no, something's got to give. Absolutely. And I think that this is really not about showing the government to be weak. This isn't about point scoring. This is about ensuring that children, vulnerable children in this country get fed. And as people obviously campaigning against this and speaking up against this, I think that that's what we should be doing. And uh, it's quite heartened to see some of these empty plate protests outside some constituency offices. Uh, where essentially empty plates with messages for that Tory MP have been left outside the office. And some of the pictures are quite quite stunning, really, to see that the reaction of local communities coming together in quite so, sort of what would be considered Tory strongholds as well. Hundreds of plates outside these doors. And I, I think that's that's a real strong reaction. Obviously, we can't really come together in big groups against this but what we can do is use some rather clever tactics to essentially show the Tory MPs for what they are and that's as Callum says scum. So from uh, one set of scum to another scummy person we're going to go over the pond to the US election and we're just going to have a quick dip into. Uh, can I just say can I just say one more thing on that by the way? Yes of course yeah. 
this is an example. What would be really, really good if um, is if for the sake of public safety, um, we just you because we know that we need to have potentially need to have lockdowns as well. Um, why not link those two ideas? Why don't we use the school holidays uh, or half term specifically, maybe not like the six week summer holiday, but use this half term in conjunction with those circuit breaker lockdowns um, and just pay people their wages during that period. Um, and the one of the reasons the Tories don't probably wouldn't want to do something like that is because it would have such a, a positive effect on the on the working lives of of so many people in this country because we have a productivity crisis in this country and one of the reasons is that people are just worn out right um and you know it's our economy linking it with climate change as well it doesn't need to be about producing as much as possible in a short time as possible um because our we're, we live in a service-based economy so if you just stop people from going to offices for a week that's not going to be a disaster for the economy but it might actually improve people's productivity because they're not burned out all of the time um, that could be a really positive thing that could emerge out of this pandemic the Tories won't let it happen but it's a lesson that, that we could learn um, and were it allowed to happen I just wanted to add that point for, for the uh, for the economists who are listening I suppose absolutely and I think that I think in a number of instances this is this pandemic could prove to be an opportunity to change how we do things fundamentally and obviously if we had a different government maybe we'd, we would see that maybe we would actually see a fundamental rethinking of how society is structured how our working lives are structured how we approach feeding children how we approach funding the NHS how we approach universal basic services and what people are entitled to so I think we should have a discussion about that another day because I think that that's certainly something that we should be talking about so as I say we're moving on to the US election moving on to what is turning into quite a quite a battle lots of words being thrown across much like the 2016 election in the US it's very heated very partisan and everybody is up in arms as always and obviously with the election coming near now it's not long to go but we wanted to speak today about actually what happens after the election we're talking about the aftermath something that a lot of people aren't really talking about at the moment a lot of people are talking about the polls and obviously that's that's important but we should also be talking about the potential consequences for the world's leading superpower and how that may impact ourselves over here, how it may impact the stability of the United States. And Callum, you just wanted to take a lead on this. Yeah, um, I think I, I've been quite sceptical for months at the relentless positivity of a lot of um, particularly liberals who are uh, who believe that Biden is going to trounce Trump next uh, in a few days' time. Um, and I've just been thinking, Trump, it's a social phenomenon. He won, not the popular vote, but he won the key states in the last 
presidential election. I, I would be very sceptical that someone like Biden, who has such an unimpressive program overall, can win, can defeat that because he has no real vision. However, uh, actually, I watched the last, well, I didn't watch the last presidential debate, but I've seen a lot of the highlights from it. There are some positive things in Biden's campaign. I still can't understand why he won't back universal health care. That's very bizarre from a British perspective. But there's actually some good things about climate change in particular, which is quite encouraging. Um, and I think yesterday there was a headline that said that Trump has lost control of the pandemic. And that is where he's lost a lot of his support. And I hesitate to celebrate that because obviously what it is is, it, is, it, is it's a tragedy and there's a reaction to that. But nevertheless, if we're just looking objectively at this election, if, if Biden wins, it will probably be because of the pandemic. And in fact, I think that will, that will probably be, if, if he wins, I suspect that will be the political, historical political battle for, for forever, I suspect, as, as whether Biden could have beaten Trump without the pandemic. Um, that will have political consequences going forward. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's still reasons to be sceptical. If you look at the polls nationally, uh, I'm looking at The Guardian's poll of polls, uh, at the moment, um, and they show Biden has a 10-point lead. That's the headline. But if you look at the eight states that they're following, the, the gap is much narrower. Um, you know, and in, in some cases, only as much as a couple of percentage points. In places like Florida, for instance, yes, Biden is ahead, but not by very much. Two points. Um, so that's within the margin of error. That's the problem. So he could still win. And the worst possible outcome for me is if there is a Biden victory, but a narrow Biden victory. Um, because if Trump wins, if Trump wins under any circumstances through the Electoral College, that's it, game over, he's got four more years because the the Democratic Party doesn't have the, the, the strength to challenge him. But, uh, you know, the, and, and the liberal elite there is spineless, essentially. But if there's a narrow Biden victory, and we're talking uh, maybe less than 20 votes in the Electoral College, then Trump will challenge it. Well, he'll challenge it regardless of the outcome. But then Trump has a potential credible um argument saying oh yes there was voter fraud and so on and so forth or credible in the sense that a lot enough people and enough people with guns will believe it um before you get to violence though you have to consider I'll, I'll deal with this in in terms of a linear timeline because the first thing of course he will do is appeal to the supreme court the supreme court that he has now just cemented a right-wing majority on he has appointed his third, I think it's unprecedented actually, third justice to the nine-member uh, Supreme Court. Um, and now, if you if you just look at the politics of it, there's now what you, you would call a Republican majority. Except it's not quite that straightforward, because 
Um, although three out of those nine are Trump appointees and then two others are right-wingers from previous administrations, that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to rubber stamp anything that Tr Donald Trump does. Partly because by the design of the Supreme Court, they're there for life. So Donald Trump, Congress, Congress could impeach them, but Donald Trump can't get rid of them. Just like that. It's a bit like uh, with Anthony Fauci, for instance, um, the, 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 the US equivalent of the chief medical officer who's consistently disagreed with Trump on basically everything since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but Trump can't get rid of him um, because he is appointed by Congress and can really be removed by Congress. Um, the same was true with the Supreme Court. Um, the other point is that while they may well be right wingers, the actual tradition, the actual right wing in, 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 in quotation marks of the Supreme Court is what you would call textualist. Um, and this was sort of the position of the, the late justice uh, Antonin Scalia, um, who, you know, was, I think he was appointed by Ronald Reagan. Um, problematic views on abortion and so on and so forth, but they justified their decisions on the basis of what is written in the Constitution uh, and what is written in law. So taking it all extremely literally, uh, and his view was that um, his view was uh, that you shouldn't be making moral judgments in the law beyond what is written in those texts. So that's the textualist position. Um, and, and the liberal moral interpretation is in opposition to that and in the minority. So actually, if what Donald Trump is trying to do, if he challenges the election, is deemed to be unconstitutional, then even a right-wing Supreme Court is not necessarily going to, going to side with the president. So what happens beyond that? Um, Donald Trump, there's a good possibility he may simply refuse to leave, um, or, you know, he, we don't know what tricks he's going to try and, uh, and pull. Um, the question really is what the, the military will do, what his supporters in the country will do. You know, these people are armed and they're organised. They're organised, to be fair, in line with the, with the intentions of the, of the Second Amendment. They're organised into militias. We saw that in their opposition to the BLM process in places to deadly effect in some places. Um, but also there's a very strong federal uh, army which, which can also oppose that. So I think, I, think, I think it's inevitable that if there's a, if there's a Biden, an arrow Biden victory, definitely Trump is going to challenge it. Um, the Supreme Court may strike it down um, and then Donald Trump will turn to the militiamen uh, to basically enforce his position. Uh, then obviously, you know, it depends what Congress... There's, there's so many unknown quantities beyond that point that it just becomes too vague. So I'm just going to try and stick to, stick, to, to, stick to the facts of where we are. But there's a serious risk of... Uh, a narrow Biden victory turning into a not a civil war but serious civil civil unrest um, and death in in the United States.
So what I am hoping for is uh, a very strong Biden victory and to once again paraphrase Yanis Varoufakis, uh, to vote for the, the moderate, uh, moderate neoliberal Democrat with all of the enthusiasm with which you'll oppose him the day after he is elected. Brilliant. Thank, thank you for that, Callum. That, that really did sum it up well. And we had that discussion before we went and recorded this. And I think it is something that we should be worried about. The US is teetering at the moment on the edge of, of, of implosion, really. Some of the tensions within the United States is incredibly worrying, certainly for those that realise that when the US inevitably does fall apart in some way or another with these with these tensions then it will have an impact on on many other countries around the world not at least our own if we if we're hanging all our hopes on the us for a trade deal post brexit then we better be hoping that it's stable and secure going forward and ollie do you share callum's concerns uh i certainly do i thought he it was very, it was very eloquently put um, that kind of statement about the what's at stake almost, because I don't think there's ever been so much at stake almost, um, and I don't think I've ever um, been so uh, what's the right word maybe like trepidatious about the outcome of this event um, because there is there's just so much to to kind of lose I guess. And um, it's it's certainly a very kind of scary time, very kind of un unsettling almost. And um, I think it's uh, it's right to share Callum's um, kind of unnervedness about polls, because what we saw in twenty sixteen was uh, Clinton had a lead on the polls, albeit a much smaller one than what Biden has at the moment. Um, uh, and look, look what happened. And as Callum says, if there is um, any kind of narrow victory, um, it will be very hotly disputed and probably almost overthrown in some way. Um, and it's just a bit kind of almost scary to to have someone who's <clears throat> who has such a, a strong will to stay in power. Um, but the the last presidential debate was quite interesting last Thursday night. I don't know if any of you saw it. They actually discussed some policy. Yeah, no, it was quite positive to watch actually. Um, I, 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 and arguably, uh, Joe Biden was more uh, radical than 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 our mainstream left party leadership. You know, calling for fifteen dollars an hour. Um, which is, uh, I think it's more than £10 an hour, actually, uh, in terms of the exchange rate. So that was quite nice to see. Um... Yeah, it was what... Sorry, go on. Although, uh, just, just to come in on that, really, the $15 an hour is probably necessary given the needs for health insurance. Yeah, it's things. the bare minimum, isn't it? It's the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Ollie, also, you get also, also a little out of date because they've been calling for the fight for fifteen since for for um, a good five or six years. So inflation's probably eroded its value 
somewhat, but nevertheless, it's a uh, look. We can't we can't expect great things from Joe Biden. We just want things to be less worse. Less worse. That's what we can hope for. It was uh, it was watched by sixty three million people. I'm just worried that um, it's not it's not the right people. Almost obviously, um, as you said, Callum, um, the U.S. kind of electoral system is very dependent on. Um, the Electoral College, I think, and swing states as well, which um, are some of the key kind of battlegrounds for this election. Um, yeah, some I'm just just looking at a map at the moment of the swing states um, in 20, 2016 and the the margins which were which were won by by Trump, and it's I don't know, it's almost a bit overwhelming. Um, because a lot of the states were won by more than eight percent by Trump, and I know that'll be severely eroded this time. I'm just wondering how many safe kind of states he has really, and how much could go wrong with um, like predicting the margins on on where he's got a, a strong kind of base. And I think a, a whole different dynamic that's come into this election is the whole postal vote system and how that's now being required for a, for a vast, well, not a vast majority, but certainly more votes than before, than historically will have been sent in. So I know that earlier um, in the campaign, there was a lot of concern around post boxes being closed or collection hours being reduced. But I think that, hopefully this will encourage more people to turn out than what we've seen before that it will encourage people to use their vote and to be able to use it from home is such a incredible perk however there is the um accusations from the trump campaign that the more people that vote postally is is almost the equivalent to stuffing ballot boxes that somehow that there will be electoral fraud because fraud because of this so it, that's another whole dynamic in this election that will be interesting to watch as we go into the last few days or so yeah where, where will you where will you be on election night Callum? i i, I will be in in lincoln for, i i think uh lincoln labor society is going to do a watch along so uh that should be interesting and maybe if we're all staying up for it we should put on a podcast afterwards for our initial reactions that's an idea isn't it <laughs> yeah it only has to be 10 minutes long so i'm sure we'll all want to get to bed by then but i'm not sure how long these things go on for i can't remember what oh no i remember for the for the last one um i think i was in the tower bar uh, at lincoln student union um and that was a way that was a really nice evening um because the place was absolutely rammed with people who were waiting to see uh, what was going to happen. Um, and obviously they served drinks until something like two, three o'clock in the morning. And then whenever their license ran out, they switched to serving tea and coffee, um, <laughs> which was really lovely, actually. Um, while we for the next sort of two or three hours uh, until you know the results were, were finally finished. Um, and I sort of remember wandering home uh, with the sun sort of rising over a slightly uh, dusky, foggy morning 
um, and, mm. and blasting It's the End of the World as we know it uh, into my headphones. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, in a way, I kind of hope that that sort of thing will happen again. Obviously, you can't have a packed room anymore. It was a lovely atmosphere, hopefully with a better result this time as well. Absolutely. And uh, we can certainly hope for a better result and we will try our best to get some immediate reaction to you, all, all you dear listeners, as soon as possible then. Um, which brings us on to our final topic we're going to discuss, which is water on the moon. We're certainly, uh, we've looked at local issues and national issues and international issues and now we're going to look at intergalactic issues and um, so scientists from nasa announced earlier this week that they have found water on the moon now there was um, a number of scientists prior to this that had suggested that there was water on the moon having seen reflections of sunlight coming off the moon as if there was uh, water or at least ice on the moon now they've announced that there is definitely water there, which is not really a surprise for many of us, given that the usual narrative around the creation of the moon is that it was the remnants of a collision between Earth, the Earth and another planet. And the, uh, the debris that was thrown out into space eventually collected around a single point of gravity, creating essentially a smaller version of Earth just without the seas the grass, or indeed the atmosphere. So they say that there is almost definitely water on the moon now. They say that it's in a frozen form, given that the temperatures on the surface of the moon are expected to be around minus 230 degrees, which is indeed very cold, certainly colder than it is now in Lincoln, um, which is surprising for many. Um, but this does bring up a lot of questions about the future of our relationship with the moon. Because when the Americans first landed on the moon all those years ago, it was largely considered just to be a ball of rock, just essentially an empty wasteland with no atmosphere. It had no resources to really tap into, or at least none that were that valuable. But with the discovery of water on the moon, potentially we could now see some kind of race to go to the moon, some kind of race to see these resources tapped, and indeed a race to get bases on the moon, almost uh, the latest phase of an arms race that we're seeing. Now, this, obviously, these questions are partly governed by international law, where apparently any interna international uh, agency, any state, any company cannot claim ownership of anything off earth so any planet any area of the moon you cannot claim ownership of it and yet we see that a number of countries the u.s including are positioning themselves to lay claim to the resources that we find on the moon that potentially we will be finding on mars when spacex missions go out there in the near future and for me this is quite concerning this arms race is, is bound to lead to, yes, bounds and leaps in, techno in technological advances, but it's also going to lead to a, a greater demand from states to be, get people into space. And obviously the narrative around a space force 
that Trump likes to talk about effectively militarizing space is very much around the corner. Uh, Callum, what was your initial reactions to this? And obviously, what does this bode for the future? Is there to be a off-planet conflict of some description or is it going to be settled far more amicably? Certainly hope not. I mean, if it's in, if it's in the hands of the scientists, um, then there shouldn't be. Uh, the International Space Station is a good example of that. You know, even regardless of whatever's been going on with the politics of Earth, the International Space Station has gotten on pretty well. Uh, largely a collaboration, of course, between the United States uh, and Russia, uh, as well as the EU and other nations and so on. Um, if that continues, then that's fine. I mean, there's some... If we're thinking about interests and who has power, uh, you know, the, the scientists, we can't go there without them, right? Um, so if they show some solidarity, then there can't be politicization of space, uh, as there has been so far, because there's a very small number of them, you know, compared to the rest of the population. So maybe there's some, maybe there's some hope in that. Um, I saw this headline earlier today, um, and you explained it to me just before um, we started recording. I've now got the articles up in front of me. Um, I think the, the really the if there were resources on the moon that were worth having, I think we would have found them and uh, started exploiting them already. Clearly, it's too expensive to go to the moon just for the sake of doing it. That's why um, that's why we stopped sending people up there in the first place. If we set up a station on the moon, I suspect it will be a stepping stone, um, a test to see if we can establish um, a, 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 a space station effectively out of our own world um, so that we can set one up on Mars and potentially in the, in the I suspect, quite far future, uh, other planets um, and it's really nice to think about in a way uh, when so much of everything else that we discuss is uh, you know about destruction in the form of the pandemic or self-destruction in the form of uh, the, our, the economic inequalities that exist in our planet and the, and the behavior of the ruling class and so on or indeed the destruction of life in general with global warming and so on. This is potentially a really nice um, story to have. Uh, I'll be really interested to see what we make of it. Um, and I, I, I think the UN might have to be involved in, in adjudicating any future missions to the moon on the basis of the rules that you just said. Um, but also, of course, uh, a lot of those, uh, the actual practical space exploration is done by nation states still, specifically United States, Russia, China, now India, um, and eventually the, ultimately the European Union, not Britain. Um, so uh, I think there's good scope to see, that, see them working together uh, and setting up an international space station on the moon, I think that's a really positive thing to, to look forward to, potentially. Yeah, and I think it, it is in, incredibly 
exciting to live in this time that potentially we could be returning to the moon and, and beyond. We could see potentially the first humans on Mars. We could see the first humans going beyond that journey beyond the moon and, and really exploring our, our solar system, which is incredibly exciting. Obviously, I do have my reservations about this. I do fear that if the sort of the interests in exploiting the the moon, Mars, etc., get allowed by the UN or somehow circumvent the UN, then potentially we could see some form of space colonization with the likes of SpaceX, the likes of some of the big space players, India, China, the US, Russia, looking to set up some sort of colony or some sort of mining colony on the moon. Obviously, it might be robotic initially, but that certainly opens the doors for further um, human, uh, I suppose, human missions beyond there. Um, Ollie, what, what's your reaction to this? Are you, uh, are you worried about the future of, of, of humanity going forward to the moon or to Mars? Or is this actually, for once, a nice story to be talking about and brings a lot of hope? It is certainly a nice story, um, and I'd love to, I'd love to see kind of where it goes. I do have some reservations, as you said as well. Um, and just as a disclaimer, I don't know what Callum just said, so um, I'm sorry if I repeat anything uh, similar to what he just said. Um, what I am kind of worried about, I guess you could call it worried about, yeah, um, is if we um, treat the moon as like a a resource and um, countries seek to gain from it personally um, and don't think about, well, how, how, how other countries can use it. For example, if one country um, kind of violates one of the space treaties, which I think are expiring soon by, um, by mining um, way more than they're allowed or something like that. Um, and it's something I learned about, um, in a sustainability course I did, it's called the the tragedy of of the commons, where um, a shared resource um, kind of system is used up by individuals who are acting in their own kind of self interest, and they they don't act for the common good, as it were. Um, so they might kind of almost ruin or destroy um, that that resource. So. Um, I think, if I'm not correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the the US and, and Russia, and maybe a few other countries, are planning on uh, backing out from some of the the new space treaties because a lot a lot of them were st- signed in the '60s, um, and they uh, they run out after 50 years basically, um, and they weren't planning on renewing them because they they want to, I don't know, act outside of the common good they want to um maybe profit and gain value from systems like the moon um independently of other countries um so i do have some kind of reservations on it almost obviously it is a really exciting kind of scientific finding and i don't know what it will will lead to but um yeah it is certainly very exciting for humanity yeah, and it, I think for me, it really does go back to that narrative that we were speaking about before, that 
with these new times, these these new changing opportunities for us, that really as as we find this new um, sort of exciting discoveries on the moon or Mars, wherever it may be, whether it be in the post-pandemic recovery, that actually we look to not ruin things for once. We look to observe the the beauty of the moon. We we look to understand about it more instead of mining it, instead of setting up all sorts of um, sort of exploitative things going forward. I think that it would be incredibly exciting to be able to understand more about it, to understand more about Mars, understand more about the origins of our solar system and to not just be so destructive as we have in the past and look to exploit the resources that we find. Because ultimately that that's what a lot of people invested money into things like the space race for it was for military gain and for economic gain and that's that's what a lot of these projects are about so when we see something um like this and they said they've discovered water and they say that they've discovered water on the moon or on mars then let's take it at face value and actually enjoy it is is what i've got to say to that instead of plotting as to who's going to take those resources how very uh, anti-capitalist. I'll tell you what I would say to that, Callum. Um, or or yeah. am I crossing over with Ollie? No, we can't hear each other. No, no, no. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah. I think we should go to the one place that hasn't been uh, corrupted by capitalism. Space. As Tim Curry once yes. said. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a nice story to end on, don't you? Absolutely. So, I think that that's a really nice way to end. As as Callum said, we should all go to space because it hasn't been corrupted by capitalism, and long may that reign. I say. So, thank you, Callum Watt, for your contributions. Thank you, no Ollie Walwyn, for your contributions too. My pleasure. And we will see you again very shortly indeed. Thank you very much.